I'm going to read from Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 29. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I'm not conscious. Confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patrons, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever Christ. Amen. It is not though uh, it, is, it is not though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is it is. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I Israel, I hated. What when shall we say? Is God God unjust? Not at all. For his, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I might dis display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God, mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the, who, to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience and objects of his wrath, prepared for this destruction what if he did what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory 
even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved, my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the, in the very place where, I, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sand by the sea, only, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will car carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is, it is just as I said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. So if you want to keep that passage open, we're going to be uh, working our way through that today. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that in it you speak to us. And uh, in this passage, uh, though there are things which are difficult, I pray that you'll help uh, us to understand what you are saying. I pray that you help us to be hearing from you. I pray that you'll give me your spirit, that I will say the words that you want me to say. And that all of us uh, will be uh, changed by what you say to us today. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was uh, working in a church uh, as a youth pastor. It was in a Baptist church. And uh, the way that uh, we did baptisms in this church was there was a huge kind of tank that lived in a, a room on the side of the stage. <clears throat> and then people would pull the, the tank out and then put it on the stage and then fill the tank uh, from a kind of tap that was underneath the stage and then the, there'll be a hose that would go into the tank. And uh, there was this one a week where we were having baptisms. Uh, it was like there was a Chinese congregation that met also with us in our morning congregation and the Chinese pastor was doing some baptisms. Uh, the senior pastor was on holidays that day so the, you know, the Chinese pastor had kind of been looking after some of the things for the baptism but generally he wasn't that involved in what was happening in uh, in the rest of the, the life of the church. So that was kind of what was going on. And uh, the, the service began, and I was standing up the back waiting for the youth uh, stuff to happen. We were going to head out a bit after the baptisms. We were going to take them upstairs. But things were going along well. There was a choir that sang, and then it came time for the baptism. And uh, as the pastor got ready to baptize, he looked at the, the baptismal pool or the tank, and everyone else looked at the tank at that stage, and I looked at the tank, and I could see at that point that the water for the tank was right at the top of the tank. And you could see that you know his head was ticking, and everyone else's head was like, oh, and going back to like year seven science with like the water displacement test, and it was like, you know, if we put you know a baptismal person in the, in the thing, then you'll be able to figure out the volume of that baptismal person by how much water comes out of the tank and then splashes the people in the front. And then we would get both a Baptist baptism and then an Anglican one at the same time. That, 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 you know, things were going, going to go horribly wrong. And so people, you know, realized that they need to do something. So a bunch of people jumped up and grabbed like buckets and jugs and started 
bailing out the, this um, baptism tank and running them through the service. And then everyone just could have stood around trying to, trying to figure out what to do. And I was standing at the back and I just thought it was great. I was having a good laugh because I love it when things like this go wrong. And I was like, well, why don't we just get on with the service? But the, no one started the service. Like, what is happening here? And then I realized, I was like, someone should tell people what to do. And then I was like, why is no one telling people what to do? And then I realized no one's telling people what to do because the senior pastor is away. That means that I am the ranking staff member now. I am the one in charge. I was like, oh, no, now I've got to tell people what to do. So I was like, man, I can't just stand back and laugh. I've got to, like, you know, pull rank. And so I went down the front. I was like, all right. And I kind of figured out the service. I rearranged it for people. I said, you do this, you do this, and then we can do the baptism later. And then, then you know, everything kind of worked out. And knowing then that I was now the senior pastor for a bit, I you know, fired some people on staff I didn't like and gave myself a pay rise. And, you know, that was it all worked out right in the end. Uh, I tell you this because uh, in this uh, passage that we see, uh, one of the things that Paul talks about is he talks about the role that God plays. And we're going to see, as we look at it, that God has to play his role as God. God has to be God. Now, I had to play my role as the pastor at that point. Otherwise, there would have been chaos, absolute baptismal chaos, and people would have drowned. Probably not. It would have all been fine. But I had to step up and play my role. Otherwise, you know, things would not have gone the way they should have gone. And God has to step up and play his role in our life, or we have to allow him to play his role in our, in our life. Otherwise, things will not work the way that they should. And we don't always like that. This passage in Romans chapter 9 is not an easy passage. When Pete asked me to preach, I looked at the preaching roster as we were kind of going through the roster, and I saw that we were in kind of Romans 8, and I was like, Romans 8, great, I'm going to get to preach on Romans 8. And he moved just past Romans 8, that great passage, you know, about the love of God, and to Romans 9. I was like, oh, no, not Romans 9, please. He was like, yes, Romans 9. I was like, man, I do not want this passage. And the reason why this passage is so hard is, you know, people, it's kind of generally acknowledged that Romans 9 to 11 is really kind of the most difficult parts of the Bible. But I think the reason why it's difficult, particularly this bit, is not because it's difficult to understand. Like as we read this bit, we understand what it is saying. It is saying that God chooses some people to be saved and some people for destruction and judgment. And the problem with that is that we understand it. That is the difficulty. We understand it and we don't like it. It's like that apocryphal quote from Mark Twain that says, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do. And I think that's how we sometimes feel about this. And uh, Paul is... Uh, talking about this because he's just moved on from that great part of Romans chapter 8 that if you uh, weren't here last week, uh, it's a bit that talks about uh, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can trouble or persecution or hardship, uh, can life or death, angels or demons, no, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And so Paul has said this amazing, you know, climactic bit of, the, of Romans, <clears throat> And then now he moves on uh, to this question of, well, well, if God is a God who loves us so much that nothing can separate us from his love, well, then the question that brings up with then is, well, what about, uh, what about the, the Jews? What about the people of Israel? They were the people who God originally chose. In Abraham, he chose them to be his people and to bring, uh, be a light to the nations. And, and Paul talks about, like, through them uh, is uh, the 
theirs is the, the, the adoption to sonship and the divine glory and the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple and the Messiah, who is God overall forever. Like Peter's saying, all these things were given to God's people. But now there are all these people who are not following Jesus. They haven't put their trust in the Messiah. And so has God's love, has, has, have they been separated from God's love? Has God given up on them? And so this is the question that Paul is raising because he wants to know, has God given up on them? Has he left them behind? Because if he has left them behind, then maybe he can leave us behind too. And maybe we can be separated from his love. And so he starts off by uh, talking about his feelings and how he feels about uh, what is going on. And so he talks about how he is in anguish, in great sorrow in his heart, and he wishes that he himself could be cursed and cut off uh, from Christ if only his fellow Jews might be able to come to faith in Jesus. He's sharing with us his heart and how painful it is for him uh, that his, the, his brothers and sisters and his you know, fellow Jews might not be able to know Jesus. This, this, this hurts for Paul. I don't know if you've ever met a, uh, a, a young male Bible college student. Uh, I have met quite a few in my time. I have been one in my time. And one of the things that, that happens with a lot of Bible college students, particularly the young men, uh, is that they love to talk about the Bible, love to talk about these big theological concepts and argue about them and all these big things that have huge you know, life implications as if they're just kind of intellectual subjects. Like you can go online and see them arguing. Like you find on Facebook, like some page like Calvinist means for theological teens or something like that. And they'll argue there. There'll be like people arguing like, you know, is hell forever or do people get annihilated or, you know, does God destine some people for hell or all these things. And they'll argue just to have this, you know, intellectual discussion, but it means nothing to the heart. What Paul is saying here is like, he is not like that. Like this is a big deal what he is talking about here and it hurts him. It is painful for him because it is his parents who he's talking about. It's his brother and sister. It is the people who trained him. It's all the people he was spending time with before he became a Christian. These are the people that he loves. This hurts him that there might be people who are separated from Christ. And we need to make sure that, if, that as we deal with these, issue, these issues, that, that our hearts are soft. That it's not just intellectual, but that we know that this, this matters because this is people's lives that we're talking about. These are people's uh, eternities. So then Paul moves on to uh, this next question uh, that he has uh, from verse 6. He says, It is not as though God's word had failed. Because the question would be, if God had made all these promises to Israel, did, uh, did they still stand? Or has God you know, given up on these things? Has, as his, are his promises not true anymore? But then Paul kind of works his way through some of the, the patriarchs, the great uh, elders of Israel, and to, to show us that God's promises came to them, not to the, everyone who is descendant of Abraham, but to some. The promise only came to some people. And first he talks about Isaac, who was Abraham's child, to, to his wife, uh, Sarah. And he's saying, you know, the promise didn't come to all of Abraham's children, but God chose one. And the promise of God's people would flow through Isaac. And then people might say, oh, yes, but, you know, we see that. The promise was only to Abraham and to Sarah, but everyone after that, they should all be people who receive the promise because of their descendants, because they are part of Israel. 
And so then Paul says, oh, no, 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 you've got to keep going. Because then you look at uh, Isaac's children, uh, Jacob and Esau, and they, these guys are twins. They have the same mother, the same father. They were born at the same time through the same procreative act. And still God chose one of them to be the one who would receive the promise. And the other one would go on to become the, the elder of another nation. That God has always been choosing people, and not because they do anything good or bad, but God chooses in His wisdom to have some people to be the ones who receive His promise, and some people who will not be those people. And so this is how Paul kind of shares with us, you know, what God is up to. And so then the, the question might be then, well, okay, if God chooses some people and not others, and some people are going to be people who receive God's you know, salvation and some people aren't, isn't that unjust? Because there's no justice there. Because God is just, you know, it seems like he's just arbitrarily picking some people here and some people there. Like, this seems like injustice, injustice. And so we see what Paul goes on to say uh, in verse 14. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have mercy compassion. For Paul, what he is saying there is that this is a question of mercy. It would be injustice if there are a bunch of good people who do good things and God was like, well, you're good and you're good and you're good, but, you know, some of you I'm going to send to hell and some of you aren't. But what Paul is saying here is that all of us are people who deserve God's punishment. Uh, earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about that all of us, Jew and Gentile, like people who have been part of God's you know, chosen people and people who are, are not, all of us are people who have sinned against God. All of us are people who have rebelled against God and all of us are deserving of God's punishment. And so the, the thing that would be just is just for everyone to be punished by God. But it's God's mercy that he would choose some people to be saved some people to be forgiven, and some people to be welcomed into his family. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion. It's up to him. And this is part of the argument that Paul is saying, that it is up to God to make these choices. This is God being God. God will be God, and that's who we need him to be. We need him to be making these decisions. Uh, Paul then uh, moves on and, and shares with us a picture of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the one who was the leader of uh, Egypt when Israel was there and they were enslaved. And God chose for Pharaoh to be someone who would, he would harden him so that he would, uh, you know, withhold, you know, Israel. He would keep Israel in uh, Egypt. He would not let them go. And then God would show his glory by the way that he set Israel free out of Egypt. That Pharaoh was playing his role in God's plan. And so this, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but this is kind of uncomfortable, this idea. That if God chooses some people to be saved and some people to be hardened and that is all for his glory, uh, then, then we, we don't really like that because we want to be the ones who say that, well, we have a role to play. We want to be part of this. And so then, then, then Paul knows what the next question is. And so he moves on from in verse 19. He says, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? The idea being that if, if God chooses some and not others and that we don't get a choice, then why would we be punished for that? Like, why would God blame us for that? 
And I get kind of asked this question by young people when we talk about predestination. It's like, you know, if it's all God's choice, then, 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 you know, what role do we get to play? And why would God hold it against us? It's all Him. And so what I do when, when this question comes up is then I say, well, you know, when we look at the way that, you know, we make decisions, you know, we see in the Bible that God calls us to respond to Him and, and God, you know, gives us the chance to, to commit our lives to Him and that we get to make a choice. And somehow God's choice and our choice, they work together. Somehow that happens. But that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't spend his time, you know, kind of giving us all the, you know, intellectual arguments and looking at the Bible. He just says... Uh, he just says, For, uh, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He's saying, it's not up to you to make those decisions. You don't get to talk back to God. You don't get to, to question God in these things. And he likens us uh, to a, a clay that was being formed into a, a, some object by a potter. And the clay doesn't get to talk back to the potter. It's not like, you know, if you were clay, you know, the clay could be like, oh, excuse me, potter, I see that you are making me into a chamber pot. I'd rather, much rather be a tagine because they are much cooler and hipsters like them. Chamber pots are the worst. And the potter was like, well, no, you're going to be a chamber pot. It's like, no, please make me a tagine. You will be a chamber pot. Like the clay has no right to talk back to the potter. The clay is owned by the potter. The potter makes the choice about what the clay will be for the potter's purposes. And that's how, how Paul responds. He's saying, he's saying, you've got to let God be God because God will be God. And you don't get to judge God for his decisions because that is, he is playing his part and you, uh, your job is to play your part. And we, we still don't, we don't like this. We, we grate against this because we, we want to have a role to play. We want to know better than God. We want to be able to tell God, no, this is who you should save and this is who you shouldn't save. And this is what you should do that is right and this is what you, should, you shouldn't do that because it's wrong, God. We want to tell God what is right and what is wrong. Uh, in, the, in the story of Job, uh, we see in the Bible there is a man who has spent, uh, who has you know, had a, a good life, but then at some point because of a... a um, an agreement between God and the devil in this story, uh, Job uh, loses so many things. He loses his family. He loses his livelihood. He loses his house. He loses his health. And then for about 40 chapters of Job, he is you know, talking to his friends, and Job is saying, I want my chance to stand before God and question him. I want my chance to, to find out why God has done this to me. I want to bring God on trial for what he has done. And then when God finally does turn up and meet Job, what God says to him is that, who are you, Job, to question me? You don't understand what I am doing. You are not great like I am. And then he says this, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And what God is saying there is that if you spend your time condemning God for the choices that he has made, then what you are doing is putting yourself in the position of God. And God can no longer be God. Not that he ceases to exist, but God is not God in your life anymore because you are saying you know better than him. Now, we're allowed to ask questions about God. It's good to ask questions. But to question God in judgment and say that you know better, then God no longer has the role of God to play in your life. 
And then you are the one who has to know what is right and what is wrong. And you are the one who has to be able to make the wise decisions. And if you do that, then, then, it's, then you will find quickly that it's all too much for you because you don't know what God knows and you don't have the abilities that God has. Uh, one of the places I used to work was an uh, organization that ran uh, camps for young people. And I worked in the school's ministry section, so I would go around to schools and I would hang out with lunchtime Christian groups and I would spend time, you know, preaching in chapels. But the other part of this organization is the camps they would run during school holidays and during school time. And we had a campsite that was right next to a lake. And I would go there every year to speak on this camp that was a sailing camp. And so I'd go out on the boats, and when I would go out on the boats, I would have no idea what I was doing. I know nothing about sailing. I'm a useless sailor. And so finally there was this time when they had like a staff training day where you could go and get trained in all sorts of things and they were doing some training in sailing. So I was like, I should probably go and learn how to sail. And so I went and uh, hopped on this, this boat. It was a, a little kind of catamaran called a Hobie Cat and uh, we were on this, uh, on, out on the lake and this guy who was the head of training in the uh, organization was teaching me what to do. He was like, you know, these are what the sails do and these are what the different ropes do and this is what the rudder does and you, you know, put that up and pull that and then move that and then as you do that, then you'll be able to sail along. I was like, okay. And so he's like, what does it do? And I kind of told him. It's like, all right, Tom, you take the boat now. I was like, okay. And so I got ready to take the boat. I was the captain and we started heading along and then I'd kind of be like, you know, you know, pull one rope and then the, the boat would do the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. And I'd move the rudder and would go the opposite way I wanted. We'd like speed up when I wanted to slow down and we'd turn left when I wanted to turn right. And everything kind of started to go horribly wrong. And then eventually within like a few minutes, we capsized and everyone was in the water. I was like, oh no, I'm a terrible captain. And everyone was like, Tom, you're a terrible captain. And they righted the boat and everyone hopped in and then they left me in the water and then they sailed off. And so I was stuck in the water, like, you know, floating along in, with my life jacket on and they came back about 10 minutes later after they had taught me my lesson and then lifted me back in the boat and they never let me drive the boat again and now I am not the you know sharpest cookie in the tool shed and uh, I I cannot figure you know just how to you know drive this little boat like that's too much for me that is overwhelming for me I cannot be that captain now when we you know when we look at what God's role is you know we don't know why he makes the decisions that he does And he doesn't tell us why he makes the decisions that he does. He could tell us if he wanted to. But that's not our role. Our role is to trust him. If we were to become the captain, then it would all become overwhelming very quickly. We would capsize everything very quickly. We have to let God be God. We need him to be God because he is the only one who can handle these decisions. But when you get to this state where you go, well, all right, then I'm going to I've got this you know, thing that I don't know why God makes the decisions he does and why he chooses who he chooses. I, I don't know that. And so you can feel a little bit kind of unmoored. You can feel lost because you don't, if you don't know, then you've got to just trust God. And how do you know if you can trust him? Because all you have is you know, this kind of a, you know, this, this thing that God will be God and you've just got to let him be God. Well, at the beginning of the passage, we saw Paul's anguish at his people who were uh, going to meet God's judgment because they had not chosen to follow Jesus as the Messiah. And he said, if only I could be cursed and cut off from Christ so that they might 
be part, be, be, receive the promise. And uh, what, Paul, what Paul felt, we actually see in the life of God. And we see that in God, we see his anguish that people would be cut off from him. And so he himself, in his son Jesus, he comes to us and lives with us. And he receives the curse that we deserve. That we are people who have sinned. We deserve to be punished for what we have done. But Jesus is cursed on our behalf. And we see God's heart for us that he would die for us at the cross. We see his heart for us that Jesus would be cut off from his father so that we might be welcomed into God's family. We don't know why God makes all the decisions that he makes. We don't know why he chooses who he chooses. And there are other parts of the Bible that we could look at and we could, you know, you know, look at how God, you know, does call us and how we get to choose him and all those things. But what we really need to know is, is God trustworthy? Well, if we've seen his uh, person in Jesus, we've seen his love in Jesus, we've seen that he was willing to live with us and die for us in Jesus, then we've seen his heart and we know that we can trust him. And that's so much more important than knowing why he does what he does, because we will never have what it takes to understand everything. But we do have what it takes to see that we are loved. And we do have what it takes to say, well, if he is willing to die for us, then we know that we can trust him and we know that his decisions are good. And so that's, you know, where Paul leaves us at the moment. That God is a God who makes us, those of us who are you know, not you know, Jews, that still we are welcomed in. We were not his people and we have become his people. We were not loved and we have become loved because of what Jesus has done. And the hope is that you know, more and more people will turn to him, whether they're Jew or Gentile, that God will draw all people to himself. This is what we hope for and what we look forward to. The question is, well, what is it then that uh, that we can do in response? How do we respond? Well, one is the question that this all raises, is God, has God given up on Israel, the, the people of God? And as we continue through the rest of Romans, we'll see that no, he hasn't. And he's still calling them to respond to him. And so we can you know, pray uh, that God will continually be bringing people to himself. And that's one of the ways that we can respond is to be people who pray. If God is a God who it's him who chooses who will come to him, and he is the ones who choose, he is the one who chooses who will receive mercy and who will not, then we pray and beg him that people we know and people we love will come to faith in Jesus, that they might receive God's mercy in him. The second thing that we could do is make sure we live humble lives because we are not chosen by God because of any good thing that we have done. It's not because of our good works that God welcomes us into his family. It's because he has chosen us to be people who receive his mercy. And so we cannot live lives, boastful lives. And people at the moment, I think, uh, some in wider society, people are a bit kind of uh, concerned about us as Christians and the way that we want to uh, impose uh, our you know, way of you know, behaving on the rest of society and whether or not we are trying to do that or not is a discussion for another day. But, but what we have to be aware of is that as we relate to the wider society, that we do it with humility. Because the whole point of this passage is that we weren't picked because we were smart enough to pick God. We weren't 
chosen because we were great people and we've figured it all out and so we can tell other people how to live too. No, we were chosen only because of God's mercy. We were chosen only because God chose to have compassion on us so we live with humility because, because we know uh, that it is all because of the grace of God that we are where we are. Uh, the third thing that we can do in response to this is that we can share the love of Jesus with other people. Because we don't understand how God works, but somehow God does work so that the sharing of his good news is part of how God picks people. And, and somehow people choosing to follow Jesus is part of how God chooses people to follow him. And we don't know how those things work together. That's, you know, above our pay grade, but somehow it works. And so we share the good news of Jesus so that others, we might find those who God has chosen and they might come to faith in Jesus. And we don't have to worry about who is and who isn't chosen. We just worry that all, the fact that all people get an invitation to follow Jesus and let God worry about the rest. God will be God. And that's exactly who we need him to be. Everything else is beyond us, but he can be God and we can be his people and we can trust him with the rest. Uh, if you are not a Christian, then what this means for you uh, is that you don't know where you sit with God. You don't know his response to you, but what you do know is that he is, you've, you've heard about Jesus today and you've heard about what Jesus has done for you when he gave his life for you. And Jesus' invitation to you is to put your trust in him, to have a God as your God. And so you know I can trust him with whatever it is in my life that I am unsure of, that he is good enough and big enough to sort everything out. I can trust him. You can put your trust in him. And you will know that God has chosen you to be part of his people. And if you are a Christian, then the challenge for you is to trust God and to let him be God and say, there are some things that are too big for me, but I know that he is good and I will trust him that he will do what is right. I'm going to say a prayer for us. Our Father God, we thank you that you are good. And there are some things that we definitely do not understand. There are some things that we read in the Bible and we do not like them. But God, we know that uh, you cannot be God unless uh, you are a God who does uh, what is good and what is right and what you know is right rather than what we think is right. And so I pray that we will trust you in that. I pray that we will live humble lives knowing that we are followers of you, not because of our goodness, but because of yours. I pray that we'll be people who share your love because we know that it is through the knowledge of Jesus that people come to faith in you. We don't know how it all works together, but we trust you to be God because that's who we need you to be. Amen.